Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. On today's show, I've gambled by trying to make an economist sound interesting. And the guy I'm going to talk to is Michael Knox from a, a brokerage firm in Brisbane called Morgan's. It's a stockbroking firm right around the country, in fact. But Michael Knox is one of the best predictors of what's going on in economies. And he's also a very interesting guy in his own right. So I'm going to start off by talking about Knox, the person, but then I'm going to end up with Knox's forecast for what he thinks is going to happen to the economy, to the stock market, to commodities, to even though he won't tip things like BHP or RIA, he can tell us what that sector is likely to have before and over the next year or so. His observations will be very interesting and they will be really insightful. So let me introduce Michael Knox of Morgan's. He's a man of many talents. And before I get to, the, to his talents of um, predicting where the economy is going, I want to sort of indicate to people listening here that not all economists are as boring as you think. Yeah, Michael Knox actually has had a rather interesting life. Uh, I should welcome you to the program, uh, Michael. Uh, well, I, I can't wait to find out what the introduction is going to be, Peter, so please continue. Okay, well, the thing is, is I should make the point that um, Michael's had a very good uh, track record in making predictions about economies and markets and things like that for quite some time, particularly with the um, the media uh, properties that I've been involved in over the last 12 or 15 years. But his, um, his background is an interesting one because you didn't sort of go straight to economics, did you, Michael? Uh, no, in my first life, I was an Australian trade commissioner um, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, to start off with, um, started did language training in Cairo and was uh, uh, and became part of the Australian Embassy in Saudi Arabia. Uh, then uh, came back to Australia, did some trade policy work, and uh, went to be uh, first secretary of the embassy in uh, Indonesia. So that was my original background. Um, okay, but, uh, so I've been, I've been stumbled. I've been, Yes, yeah, please go on. Well, you, you obviously found the life of a, in, as a trade commissioner or working for the Department of Trade in, in really boring places like Saudi Arabia and whatever. You found that so boring that you needed to um, do something far more interesting like economics. Is, is that the story, Michael? Uh, well, um, uh I did a master's degree and got into uh, got into broking in Sydney. Uh, that was uh, after about nine years as a trade commissioner, uh, and then uh, after a couple of years in Sydney, came up here and um, uh, decided that I wanted to be the economist. They didn't have an economist, but I wanted to demonstrate it, that they needed one. So after about uh, six months, they'd given in, and I've been the economist here ever since. So, so you actually pitched your job to to Morgan's. Uh, yeah, I um, uh, I, inv I invented it and and then uh, went about doing it. Why did you think you were gifted enough to be a good economist? You know, you, hey, what was your first degree before you went went to the, the Department of Trade? What was your first degree? Uh, 
Well, I'd, um, it was actually a Bachelor of Business, but um, uh, I'd come first in economics and I majored in economics within the, within the Bachelor of Business and, uh, uh, and was accepted into the then Department of Trade ahead of various people with first-class honours at uh, Sydney and Melbourne University. Okay, so so therefore, oh, so it was a good degree. It was a good degree. Yeah. yeah. So so therefore, in a sense, you were on a, a a potential trail to become an economist, but you kind of didn't know it at the time. I guess so. Yeah. Now I've been told by other economists that you're very good at econometrics, which a lot of economists aren't good at econometrics. Were you a gifted mathematician as a kid? Um, that wasn't the reason that I got into econometrics. I think uh, I, I got into econometrics. This is this is back uh, back when they uh, invented the thing called the personal computer, uh, and it wasn't until that time that economists had been able to run their own econometric programs. And that was available for me to do a master's degree um, on uh, building a model of um, uh, financial markets. I, I did that when I was on leave at the very end of my period of being in the Australian Trade Commission. And uh, gaining a master's degree and, and getting at the top level of, uh, of um, uh, mark that I could have for my master's thesis effectively. Uh, but that sort of convinced me anyway that I was capable of doing the job, but I couldn't find a job uh, in uh, economics and in finance to go into. So I became a um, institutional options dealer because I'd written a lot about uh, trading stock options at the time. You remember at that time, uh, there was a great man who had uh, uh, revolutionised uh, finance in practice in Australia called Robert Hamilton Holmes Accord, mm. and he'd done it by trading stock options. So I wrote a lot about what he had done and uh, both the theoretical and practical structure of what he had done. And uh, so I gained my entry into the business in that in that area, in stock options rather than in economics. Okay. Um, so, but apart from all this, you your own interests, you like, you, you seem to always want to go to America around Christmas time. Is this something that I've just noticed that you end up in America at Christmas time? And if so, what's the method in this, this madness around Christmas? Um, well, actually this uh, um, is, uh, was based on an argument that I had with, uh, uh, when I was, I became back at uh, so about 2010 through 2010 to 2013, I, I became president of the Economic Society here in Queensland. And uh, the first year there was a, uh, a discussion about the quality of the national conference. And uh, a, a senior member of uh, the, the uh, federal executive. Uh, argued that uh, we couldn't compete with the with the U.S. National Conference. So I, uh, I I argued that he was absolutely desperately wrong, and I was going to prove this by going there to the conference, and, and I proved to myself that he was absolutely right. 
And I've been going to that uh, national convention ever since. And uh, as a result of that, I get to uh, go to presentations by people in the Federal Reserve and, mm. and various people who've wound up running the Federal Reserve uh, during the period. So I've basically uh, had the enormous advantage of physically going to presentations by Janet Yellen and, and Ben Bernanke and a couple by uh, Jay Powell and also other various people who've been uh, deputy chairs of the Fed as well presented at this convention. Okay, so where is this conference on and when is it on? For, uh, for people who are listening and think, gee, this could be a nice tax deductible and justifiable trip, uh, given the, what I do in my, my working life. So tell us about that. Well, it's the uh, annual convention of the American Economics Association. And it's, uh, it's held, uh, it's a huge convention. There's about 15, oh, between 11 and 15,000 people go to it every year. Uh, there's a huge convention uh, market in the US. And so uh, a convention center is uh, picked uh, years ahead and it rotates around the US so that you see various parts of the US on an annual basis. So mm. It's been variously held since I've been going to in, a, in Atlanta in Georgia, um, uh, in, uh, in Chicago a couple of times, and uh, in Boston a couple of times, San Diego a couple of times, San Francisco, and um, uh, in a couple of years' time, when they repair the place again after it's been run over by the latest, uh, uh, latest hurricane, um, uh, New Orleans uh, is, uh, is a place for itself. So, uh, but uh, this year and last year, it, uh, it, the meetings have been exactly as we are meeting now. Peter, um, <laughs> uh, in this world that is surrounded by virtue, we are meeting virtually. Uh, this year, unfortunately, it will be a virtual meeting. This is to say in January, yeah. uh, the beginning of next year, it will be a virtual meeting, but I think it will be a physical meeting after that. And well, physical well, meetings are really good because you can walk up and talk to, you know, the chief economist, the World Bank, uh, people from the Fed, uh, just walk up to them and talk to them personally yeah. and ask those kind of questions that you could never ask on the, on the meeting. Yeah. I am... Um... I said on radio last week that um, there was a it was arguably one of the most uh, boring conferences in the world being held at a place called Jackson Hole last week, occupied by arguably some of the most boring people in the world. But often their decisions can be rather exciting for the for the stock market as well. Was I unfair on the central bankers of the world, um, John uh, Michael? Well. Um, uh... Central bankers, one central banker has told me I should go to, to that, but another central banker in his position has, uh, has suggested to me that um, uh, I have to be invited. I think they used to have, uh, when they were doing it physically, um, I think uh, the, you, could, you could actually uh, buy an observer uh, access uh, in previous years before before the current pandemic. And I think, and various friends of mine have actually been to it as observers. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the point about that conference is you have very, very high quality people going to it. You know. uh, the, the, the central bankers, you know, sit like, we would think like school children in a small room and put up their hands to ask questions. So uh, it is, uh, and, and speak very much to each other as, as Peers, 
you know, uh, things that are normally held as uh, international conventions on the phone, you actually have the people physically present able to ask each other questions in the same way as the international convention provides that kind of access. I'm going to talk about some some good uh, predictions you've made um, for just to establish your credentials and try and keep people listening to to you as well at the same time, Michael. But what's yes. the, what was what what the worst prediction you made which you learned a lot from? Well, I mean, uh, you must remember it so you can tell me which particular one that no, was. No, 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 no. I, look, I personally know the worst prediction I made. I was uh, <clears throat> invited to uh, Tokyo by Fujitsu. Um, uh, I, I was writing for the Sun Herald at the time. Um, it was um, early 90s. If I, in fact, I can tell you when it was, it was 94. Um, and uh, I was actually taken to the, the Bank of Japan and met the deputy governor of the, the bank and we had tea. And at the end of it, he, he asked me what I, what I thought would happen to the Japanese economy. And of course, it, it had a couple of years of recession at that point in time. And I made the bold prediction that, you know, in a couple of years' time, I expect Japan would be out. Well, of course, you know better than most that that, that period of recession kind of lasted nearly two decades. Um, so my predictions were totally wrong. I'm sure that, that deputy governor is still laughing at me uh, after all those years. Uh, well, it would probably shock you. Uh... To, to how little uh, central bankers remember anybody else who's not a central banker. So tragically, <laughs> your disaster is not treasured by, uh, uh, by the gentleman you're talking to. The one that I remember that I learned the most from actually was one that, uh, at the end of the 1990s when the euro started. And I built very uh, what I thought was a very good uh, model of the euro. Um, and it got to the year and it was an absolute disaster. In the same year, I was running a model of the stock market, which turned out to be right. And somebody asked me at the end of the year, one of our uh, branches, uh, among the branches, who uh, was a really good guy. He'd, uh, he'd worked for Drexel Burnham, I think, uh, before joining Morgan's. You know, he was a bit of a hotshot. Um, uh, and uh, he said, uh, uh, you've had a terrific year. And I said, I had an absolutely rotten year. I got everything about the euro wrong. To which he replied, who gives a damn about the euro? <laughs> and it turned out that I did. Um, and I did an enormous amount on euro getting it wrong uh, by, because of getting it wrong mm. and persistently getting it wrong. And what I discovered from that is that there was a flaw in inflating exchange rate theory that hadn't been discovered. Playing exchange trade theory tells us that uh, uh, currencies will also go up and down uh, based on uh, the level of, uh, of prices in the country, the level of inflation, relative inflation, and also the level of interest rates. And I'd run a model like that for the euro, um, and many people still run models. And I'd found for that particular year it was terribly wrong. Mm. I couldn't work out why. why. And I realised that what the key of it was you needed to also include, it's not just the price of the bonds being exchanged in the market, it's the volume of bonds. And that was a really good breakthrough for me. And that allowed me to uh, build much better models 
both of uh, currencies and, and uh, things like gold, actually, uh, which were very successful for me over uh, over the following years and decades since. To be honest. But well, that was the one that most affected what I did. Yeah. And, and do you think currency markets are, are very hard to be confident about? Uh, I, I, I can recall teaching my son about, um, you know, what, what determines the exchange rate, and I showed him a demand supply curve and told him the sorts of things that move the curves and could effectively affect exchange rate. And he looked at me and said, well, after, after teaching me that, Dad, I don't think um, your model works at all because it seems to go in the opposite direction. Of course, I left out something called speculation as well, which can, can in turn fundamental uh, issues on its ear, at least in the short term. Well, I think the market has changed a lot and uh, Guy DeBell, uh, who's uh, our deputy governor, uh, said to me at uh, an economics lunch, uh, which we, we do an economics lunch with the uh, Members of the senior members of the RBA every year, and uh, um, uh, he said, "You realise that it's not people who trade uh, currencies anymore, Michael. It's machines, and uh, and uh, the, the degree in which it's all it's all machine trading. It's all oh, yes, trading. Yes. It's all algorithmic trading. Mm. So now, to the point of you read the commentaries uh, for the International Bank of Settlements, they actually regulate the algorithms." And the disclosure of the algorithms, it's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the result of that is that a lot of what those algorithms are doing is that they're making very rapid decisions about momentum. And there, there is no agreed, uh, effectively agreed model of uh, the currency market anymore. In the way there is of uh, the stock market. In the stock market, you've got earnings per share and you've got bond yield, interest rates. Uh, a different ends of the yield curve, which determines stocks. And most people be believe that, who, who are in the business. And I'll agree on that view of how the stock market works. But there isn't a single agreed way in which the currency market works. And that, for that reason, there are machines who are trading it on momentum, although they are trading it on momentum as the dominant way of the exchange. But in spite of that, I think that there is a logic to how that works. It's just been theoretically ignored by the majority of the people doing it. Okay. Well, that's the, the biggest mistake you've made. One of the best calls you made um, was done for one of my TV programs maybe a year or so ago where you uh, – and the Aussie dollar was around 50-something US cents and you, you made the call that you thought it would go to, to 80 US cents. And so for our financial planning clients, we change them from being in IVV, which is the iShares ETF for the uh, S&P 500, to IHVV, which is the hedge version of it. Now, a few months ago, we were very happily informed by iShares that our clients got a massive dividend re uh, refund because the hedging worked so brilliantly, it was like a windfall profit. And um, so, you know, we can take our hats off to A, the fact we made a prediction, but B, I was smart enough to recognise your worth to actually then implement some policies as a consequence of it. Well, I'm looking forward to the lunch and reward. Uh, yeah, but, uh... yeah we, we, might, we might actually manage that when your Premier allows you to leave the state or allow me to come into the state. 
So yes, what I'd like to do now for the last 10 minutes of this, and I'll, I'll use this on my TV show as well, is just talk to you about what you think is going to actually happen um, with the economy, with markets, over 2022. I don't expect you to get it right between now and Christmas time because that can be too hard. Um, but certainly I want your, the feeling that you get for 2022, um, hopefully the vaccination rates are high enough to open up lots of borders, at least the internal ones first and eventually international ones. What is your uh, economic growth prediction for 2022 for the Australian economy? Well, my uh, predictions at the moment is that the Australian economy grows by 4.8% this year and 5% next year. But it's quite possible that, uh, depending on the shutdowns in Sydney and in Melbourne, uh, that could fall to 3.5% this year and up to 6% next year. But the reality is we've got a threat. We're in the, uh, entering the second wave of a three-wave commodities boom. And that commodities boom has been driven by enormously large US budget deficits. We had a resources boom uh, earlier in the century, which was driven by uh, budget deficits of uh, about 13%, 12, 13% by the US in the middle of the decade. And that generated uh, an enormous stimulus around the world, generated a weaker US dollar, growth uh, in international liquidity. And a world trade boom, and that generated a, a resources boom for Australia. Uh, uh, so we, so we, we are we are beginning to have that experience. We are at the beginning of having that experience again. Last year there was uh, another slump in the US. There was enormous big US budget deficit. This time it was even bigger. It's fifteen percent of GDP, even bigger than the last one. There was a, is another budget deficit this year, which is. Uh, a little bit less, but equal to the one 10 years ago. So you've got bigger budget stimulus this time, and that's generating another world trade boom and another resources boom for Australia. We've already had the first uh, leg of that um, in terms of uh, very high iron ore prices, which seem to be topping out now. Our analysis is uh, that it'll, uh, iron ore pricing has corrected to around about fair value and we'll be able to hold up here at about $140 a tonne or so around about this area going forward for a number of years. Uh, but what's now beginning in Queensland is an enormous boom in, how politically incorrect for me to say it, uh, a coal export, uh, because there's a dramatic escalation in uh, what uh, is often Australia's largest export commodity, and that's coal. So there's record high prices for uh, uh, metallurgical coal, which Queensland exports, and also steaming coal, which Queensland and New South Wales exports. Um, so that drives the second wave uh, of the commodities boom. The third wave of the commodities boom should happen next year uh, in that we should see these budget deficits well after a period of time cause a, a major fall in the US dollar, as they did last time in the previous commodities boom. And that generated a fall in the US dollar generated an increase in the price of gas, uh, natural gas and, and oil, particularly Brent oil and natural gas. And so we'll have a third wave of, to this commodities boom uh, in terms of uh, natural gas, and uh, which also is from Queensland, but also from the Northern Territory and Western Australia. So 
we've got a multi-level commodity boom. And uh, if you recall the last commodities boom, that generated uh, a, a multi-year um, uh, property boom in, in a number of different areas in Australia. So this is one of the better periods for the Australian economy ahead of us. Um, and, um, and we believe, of course, that the result of, the, of this is, is similar to last time, is that uh, this will generate upward pressure on the Australian dollar. Uh, and we'll see higher Aussie dollars levels as well. So this is what we've seen. What we're seeing is a, re, a, a, a larger scale, even repeat of the resources boom we had earlier in the century. In that occasion, it was driven by U.S. budget deficits. This time, the U.S. budget deficits have repeated them, themselves on a larger scale, generating potential for an even larger resources boom and a bigger terms of trade boom in Australia. Okay. We're looking at a really good time. Yeah, so can I ask you this question then? Um, those people who are worried about the share prices of BHP, Rio and Fortescue, would you say that it's probably too early to worry about them? Uh, they should worry about them, but not yet. Yes, it's, uh, it's like uh, the man uh, awaiting execution who believes he's about to be reprieved Asked, do you have any last words? And he says, not yet. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we've got uh, another couple of two to three years of this commodity boom left to go. As you remember, the last commodity boom actually lasted a while. Okay. Uh, but this is even got more stimulus behind it. Okay. So we, we're, we're happy with, you know, the likelihood that material prices should do well. And often you see after... Uh, recessions and crashes that value stocks do very well and material stocks often fit the bill of value stocks. What about interest rates, Michael? Like this, the story you're predicting makes me think, okay, central banks might hold back 2022, but as this wonderful boom goes on, 2023 seems like a year when they're going to have to raise interest rates because inflation must start picking up. What's your view on that? I think uh, the escalation in interest rates that we see uh, to begin with is at the long end of the yield curve. I think what traditionally happens is when the US dollar falls, and after a period of the US dollar falling, uh, what you have is a sell-off in US treasury bonds, and that drives up long-term interest rates around the world. So I think what we're going to be moving towards is a very positive yield curve. Short rates won't move, but long rates will go up dramatically. And Usually what happens in the, in the US business cycle is you wind up with uh, long rates about 3% higher than short rates. Now at the moment, uh, long rates in the US are about 110 basis points, 1.1% higher than short rates. I think without even moving Fed funds rate, we'll see uh, the US Treasury bond up at 3% or higher. Uh, uh, either at the end of next year or the year after. Okay, so what does that affect in the real world of normal people? Does the rising long rate in the US affect uh, home loan interest rates, um, business rates? It affects home loan interest rates in the US and it affects fixed rates uh, in Australia. Um, but... Uh, it also usually, a uh, rapid, rapid escalation of bond yields usually has a 
generates an enormous amount of volatility in stock markets. So I think uh, uh, we'll be coming to the uh, end of the steady escalation of stock markets and we'll have a lot more volatility in stocks. Um, you know, stocks, stocks will, uh, uh, will again learn that there is more than one direction that the stock market mm. can go. But will it be, do you think in 2022, uh, the stock market will still be on a rising trend despite increased volatility? I think it's more likely to break to a sideways trend at, at a relatively high level, honestly, uh, with volatility. But, uh, primarily because I think that you're getting improving earnings um, because economies are so good, but I think there's the interest rates which are very, such that you're very sensitive to bond yields, I think uh, uh, could get knocked about a bit. Okay. Now, this is an important question. I, I noted in our conference we did last week that the US market, S&P 500, is up 34% from the level it was before the coronavirus crash. But our market yeah. is up about 5%. And I, I said, well, that makes me think that next year, the US will probably, if this market goes up, it's going to be at a slower rate than us. When I factor in your commodity boom and whatever, that makes me think that my prognostication may well have, uh, may be right. What do you think? Uh, yeah, well, we're part of that, uh, the US market, which is the, the real outperformance in the, in the US has been uh, technology stocks. Yeah. And um, uh, we don't have that overweight technology characteristic to our market. So we're, we're more the kind of the mid-range cyclical, yeah. uh, which should perform better from now on, particularly if we have a, a boom in energy uh, as uh, uh, the, the energy stocks in the US have been the noted laggards of this cycle. Uh, but they should, so a lot of the stocks, which the cyclical stocks which have lagged in the US should outperform over the, uh, over the next year. And they're generally more the area that our stocks are in. Okay. Now, this is one tricky question, but you're smart enough to answer this. If someone, say, for example, bought Woodside at $22 and it's now dropped to 19 would you be willing to say, well, given my view on energy and commodities and whatever, you know, maybe it might be wise. There's no advice. There's not financial advice, of course, but it might be wise to hold Woodside shares because, you know, probably energy prices will head in the right direction for that company. Now, uh, we both know I'm not a stock analyst. No, you're not. Um, no, but I want to. I don't, I don't talk about and I don't talk about stocks, but I remark that our Morgan stock analyst uh, thinks that uh, uh, I think he's recently valued the stock at about twenty-eight dollars. So that's a good um, end, Oxy. Based, based on that judgment, um, yeah, it'd be better holding the stock. Yeah, that's a very good answer, mate. I, I really appreciate your time. Is there is there anything out there that we haven't really covered that you think might be relevant for people who want to sort of um, feel comfortable about investing in 2022? No, I think this is one of the great boom, boom periods for Australia, uh, as it was uh, in the previous resources boom. But um, remember that what happened then was that I think, particularly at the top end of the property market, uh, people got convinced that it was going to go on forever. 
but if you look at the, what then happened was the U.S. budget deficit reduced from 12% of GDP to about G about 4% of GDP. And it was actually smaller for a couple of years. It was about 2.7% of GDP. And that whole commodities boom and uh, property boom that we had entered what uh, one economist called the dog days. Uh, and the economy just went very dull and very sick for a long period of time. So uh, the sources boom are wonderful, and they're wonderful in the share market, they're wonderful in property, uh, but they, uh, they do not end, they do not begin a new, a new life uh, <laughs> for the Australian economy. They come to an end when uh, um, people in the US legislature go back to common sense and realise they have to at least run something in uh, looking like a balanced budget, which they will uh, in the next couple of years, and that will take the real fire out of what's been driving this very strong market that we're in, and we'll be in for a little while yet. Yeah. Reality bites. Michael Knox from Morgan, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Peter. And that was Michael Knox, the Chief Economist at Morgan's in Brisbane. Thanks for joining us on the program. If you want to know more, go to switzer.com.au. Or if you're interested in the Switzer Report, where we actually give you a lot of insights into the stocks that might be worth investing in, go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>